one of the things that happens in a good story, and I think this is probably true of any good story, whether it's literature or film or however you like your stories, radio play, podcast. Uh, one of the elements that is really important in storytelling is this idea of character development. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that is often missing, you know, when, when we think, I'm not sure I really like that story, I'm not really enjoying this show or this movie or this book, sometimes that's the thing, you know? It's because this character or characters haven't really been developed to a point where I really feel like I know them, you know? I don't really care about them. Now, sometimes this happens, and again, in, in good storytelling, in compelling storytelling, it kind of happens as the story progresses, right? I was thinking uh, this last week about uh, the great old story, Pride and Prejudice. It's a book. I know many of you maybe are familiar with the movie. I don't know if you're aware that it was a book first, <laughs> but Pride and Prejudice, Right? This uh, great story about these families interacting with each other. And it's interesting how we sort of get to know these people. A couple of the people that I think of in particular, there's this Mr. Darcy. Remember Mr. Darcy? So if you haven't read the book or watched any of the umpteen versions of movies, maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. But when this Mr. Darcy comes on the scene, and this is in, in old, you know, kind of Regency era England and he, he comes on the scene, and, and there are, uh, a, there's a, a family that has a bunch of daughters, you know, that are kind of looking to be married, because that's, I guess, what they did. And, and Mr. Darcy is one of the people that comes on the scene. But the thing is, nobody really likes Mr. Darcy. He seems kind of cold. He seems kind of distant, aloof. He seems, frankly, arrogant. And he's not a particularly likable character. In a lot of ways. One of the main characters in the book, this Elizabeth, you know, she just, she's repulsed by Mr. Darcy. There's another guy that comes on the scene a little bit later, a Mr. Wickham. You remember Mr. Wickham? Mr. Wickham is really likable. You know, he's very outgoing, very gregarious. Uh, but Mr. Wickham also tells everybody that he's sort of been wronged. His family was wronged by Mr. Darcy's family. And so this does a couple of things. It, it builds great sympathy for Mr. Wickham and, and makes us dislike Mr. Darcy even more, right? Well, of course, many of you know, spoiler alert again, but you know, when a story is this old, I just, you know, there has to be a moratorium on spoilers, right? <laughs> but plug your ears, I guess, for a couple minutes if you didn't want to hear the end of this story. But we come to find out that as it turns out, Mr. Darcy, despite his, his sort of aloof exterior, is actually a very noble and a very caring individual. He's very honest. He has a great deal of integrity. And we come to find out that Mr. Wickham, despite his outward exterior appearance, is kind of a, I'm just going to say it, a scoundrel. He's not a very nice guy or an honest guy. He's kind of sleazy in the end, right? And we get through this story and we find out, oh, there's been some character development here. And sometimes in a case like, like these characters in Pride and Prejudice, our, our expectations of those characters are subverted even. And it doesn't always need to be that way, but, but that's a good element 
of a story. I've said before that what we look at when we open the Bible isn't just a story. You know, this isn't just a book of literature with stories that we enjoy. However, there are some good stories in here. And as we have endeavored to study Joshua together, uh, I want to I suggest to you that here is where we really see some major character development in Joshua. You can turn in your Bibles uh, to the book of Numbers. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, then Numbers. It's the fourth book in. It's a big book. And while you get there to Numbers, we're going to go to chapter 13, very well-known story. Many of you, you'll see the heading and you'll be like, oh yeah, I know this. And what I like about this is this is where Joshua first kind of has a voice, you know. We've seen some things about Joshua the past couple of weeks. We've seen, for example, that he is mentioned as a leader of the army in this battle against the Amalekites. And so we, we understand that Moses has some trust of Joshua. It seems perhaps even that God told Moses to choose Joshua. And God says something about Moses, make sure that you write down the, the events of this day and that you read them in front of Joshua. But what we really see more than Joshua in that story, I argued, is God. You know, we see God's action, God's activity, God moving Joshua along this path to where he needs him to be. And last week, we looked at the fact that now we see that Joshua is Moses' aid, his personal aid. And as Moses chooses a, a number of individuals to help him in his ministry, to help him in uh, doling out justice for the community of Israel, as he was frequently called on to do, he was told, you need help, Moses. Remember Jethro, his father-in-law, said, you, you can't keep doing this by yourself. You need help. But what you need to, to, uh, to choose are men who fear God, men who are trustworthy because they fear God, men who aren't going to be tempted to take a bribe because they hate dishonest gain because they fear God, right? And we see that amongst those men that Joshua even rises to this level of the personal aid of Moses. And I argued, while the Bible maybe doesn't say so really explicitly, I would find it astounding if Moses chose a bunch of men to help him in this task of justice and then chose for his personal aid a complete slouch. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So we see that about Joshua. But we haven't really seen much of Joshua until this morning. We get a major beat of character development this morning which is fantastic. So in Numbers chapter 13, here's what's going on again. We talked about this before. The uh, nation of Israel, they, they, at the end of Genesis, really aren't even a nation. They're just kind of a big family. But by the beginning of Exodus, they've grown into a nation, only they've been enslaved by the nation of Egypt because Egypt was worried about them getting too powerful, kind of overrunning the land that they've been given. And so they're enslaved, and Exodus tells us the story we get introduced to Moses, a story of God delivering the people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt using Moses as their leader. And so that's where we've been. And part of what God has told them is I'm going to give you this place. Now God already promised this place to Abraham and to his descendants. They already lived there for a time. But, you know, they moved away because there was a famine. Should they have? Shouldn't they have? 
you know, that's, that's debatable, but they did. They moved to Egypt, and now they're in this real terrible jam. But right away, in Exodus chapter 3, when God speaks to Moses out of that burning bush, one of the things he says, we're going to see this, is I'm going to take you to this land that's flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Now, I think we all understand, but just in case we don't, I just want to make clear, he's not literally talking about, you know, rivers of milk and, you know, streams and waterfalls of honey, you know. He's not that. But it's this beautiful picture of abundance, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, a land that just wants for nothing. This is what he's promised them. And so in Numbers chapter 13, they've arrived. They've taken this long journey. They've spent a lot of time at Mount Sinai. They get to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law. And then we get at the end of Exodus all sorts of additional uh, rules and laws. We get all the way through the book of Leviticus, all of these laws and how to worship and how to do all of these things. And finally in Numbers, God says, okay, it's time to move again. They pack up, they move, they get to the promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey. And I didn't bring a map for you today, but you can sort of picture this. This is Canaan. Think modern day Israel even on your map. And they're approaching from the south. And so they're coming from the south and they're going to go in. And this is where we are in Numbers chapter 13. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan kind of want to come back to this thought so file that away but god told moses send some men to spy out this land from each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man everyone a chief among them so moses sent them from the wilderness of paran according to the command of the lord and all of them were men who were heads of the people of israel and then we get a list of their names and i'm not going to take the time to to read all these names not because they're unimportant but just you know to save a little bit of time but in verse 8 we see from the tribe of ephraim hoshea the son of nun and then look down uh, sort of at the bottom of the paragraph the end of verse 16 moses called hoshea the son of nun joshua so we get oh that's oh okay that's joshua and we've been told before that Joshua's dad was a guy named Nun. That's that old Bible joke, you know, that old dad joke, that groaner, right? Who's the only guy in the Bible that didn't have any parents? Joshua, because he was the son of Nun. <laughs> uh, I'm here all week. In verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up into the Negeb. And go up into the hill country, see what the land is, and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. So be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. (coughs) Excuse me. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up. And they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob, near Lebo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Sheshai, Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but for them it would have you know, sort of placed it in a historical context. We don't need to worry about it a ton. Verse 23 
they came to the valley of Eshkol, and they cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. (laughs) I want to stop right there. I have never, when I go to the grocery store with my charming and beguiling wife, Deborah, picked up a cluster of grapes and thought, I'm going to need Deborah's help to carry this. (laughs) Right? You just get a load of this cluster of grapes. In fact, some of you maybe have a footnote. That's what this word Eshkol means. It means cluster. That's why they named it later the Valley of Eshkol, because this ginormous cluster of grapes came from there. So big that they decided they'd better put it on a pole and carry it between two guys. And then also some pomegranates and some figs. Verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and saw all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Isn't that great? Again, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when God is first speaking with Moses about this trip that they're going to take, you know. So I've heard the cry of my people. I'm here to deliver them. You're going to lead them. And I'm going to take you to this land that I've already promised you. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And here come these spies back. And they say, it is. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, not literally. We understand. But it was a rich land. It was an abundant land. And they say, here is some fruit. And they pull out this gigantic cluster of grapes, the likes of which I can't even hardly imagine, you know. Look at this. Look at these pomegranates. Have you ever seen such great pomegranates? And these figs. Anybody hungry for figs? I mean, look at it. It's true. The land's amazing. But you recall they were also told to find out what kind of people lived there. And they said in verse 28, however, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Isn't that great? So they come back. And so far, all they've done is come back with the report that they've been asked to give. What's the land look like? How is it? What sort of people live there? What kind of cities? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they come and they give a fairly honest and upfront report. The land is great. The fruit's amazing. Look at it. The people, however, they're really big. They're strong. They're powerful. You asked if they had cities that were strongholds or just sort of encampments. Let me tell you something. They're strongholds. They're big cities. We're going to find out 
a little bit later about the nature of some of these cities, the walls that were around these cities. They're, they're fortified. They're strong. The people there, they're, I mean, they're like giants. But Caleb, one of the other spies, we didn't read his name before, but he is one of the, the spies along with Joshua. Caleb says, wait, 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 shh, shh, Because, you know, you can, you can hear the people kind of start to murmur, can't you? You know, you give a report like this, and you can just hear in the crowd, oh boy. And Caleb says, wait, 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 wait. Let's go up and take the land. We can do this. Now, is Caleb really saying we can do this? I don't think so. I think if there's any question left in our mind, we're going to see what Caleb really means. This will be fleshed out a bit. But I love this statement. Don't even worry about it. God said we could have this land. God told us there would be people in this land. He promised us that he would drive them out in front of us. He would clear out this land for us so that we could have it. What are we waiting for? Let's go. This is, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 13, when God says to Moses, I want you to send some spies into this land. Is this a bit of a test on God's part? Is not God, in essence, saying to the Israelites, I want to see whether you believe me. This is a pretty simple matter of faith. I have told you some things. Now, I want to show you this land and then see what you do with this information. Because you now have a, a number of pieces of information. One, the land is great. Two, it's populated by really strong people. But three, I told you you could have it. Now, what will you do? And I don't think God is testing them because, you know, he's capricious. Well, I, because I know my God, I know he's not testing them because he's capricious. But he is indeed testing them here and saying, what are you going to do with this information? After Caleb said this in verse 31, the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> now they're stretching the truth a bit, aren't they? I mean, at least... They're stretching the truth. At worst, they're just out and out lying. You know, this bit about this land devours its people. Where did that come from, right? And where did they get this? But do you see what they've sneakily started to do? And it says at the beginning of this that they come and they make this report before Moses and Aaron and before the whole congregation. And yet, you know, I think you and I probably understand it. It's very difficult to speak to this entire nation of people that was, by all accounts, upwards of a million people, maybe more, right? 
And so now what they do, they make this report to, to the leadership, but then they sort of go back out into the, the people, back to their tents, back to their homes, back to their neighbors. Hey, welcome home. What was the trip like? Oh, it was bad. We do not want to go into that land. We cannot do it. It's a land that devours its inhabitants even. You know, they don't talk about it devouring people who try to invade it. He says the people who live there you know, are devoured by this land. Well, that's not true. They said before it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Oh, the land is awful. And the people there, they're giants. They're so big, guys. And they start this sort of misinformation campaign, you know. Spreading this word throughout the people. It's not just that they seem to lack a faith and a trust in what God has told them. But they go so far as to pervert the truth and to go tell everybody, we can't do this. There's no way we can do it. Verse 14 says, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And can I just fill in the unspoken blank there? Where we were slaves. Where we had to do whatever we were told. And our lives were miserable. Let's go back there. Let's get rid of Moses and choose a leader who will take us back there. Moses and Aaron, verse 5, fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And verse 6 says, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they said, that is Joshua and Caleb said, to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. They sort of correct the record a bit. This, this bit about the land devouring the people who live there, that's not true. It's an amazing land. This land is, is, <coughs> excuse me, is indeed flowing with milk and honey. And if the Lord delights in us, He'll give it to us. He said that He would. Come on! They try to rally the troops a little, don't they? Only don't rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land. They are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And the response from the people of Israel in verse 10, the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people in Israel. sort of accelerate and not read all of this. I know many of you are, are very familiar with this. But what God says through Moses, He says, I'll tell you what, because you have 
been disobedient because you have rebelled as a people. None of the adults, 20 years and older, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, none of the adults will enter this land. Instead, you're going to wander around in the desert for a good long time. It's going to be a total of 40 years in the wilderness until all of these rebellious people die off. That's it. You don't want to trust me? You don't want to to obey me? Then okay, fine. None of you will ever see this amazing, beautiful, rich, abundant land. Instead, you'll die in the wilderness. And then the people say, oh, oops, no, 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 okay, 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 okay. We'll go up, We'll, we'll go fight. Well, that doesn't go well. God has already said, no, you're not getting it now. So they get routed. And sure enough, they're going to spend a total of 40 years wandering in the wilderness until that whole generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, die away. But the bottom line here is that they have an opportunity to exercise or to not exercise this word faith. We talked about this recently in our study of the book of James, too, that faith is simply believing in that which we cannot see. Yes? And what they're being asked to do, even in the face of the evidence of what these people are, is to exercise faith that no matter what the people of the land of Canaan are, God is greater than, right? I mean, isn't that the bottom line? I mean, do we have any... No, we'll we'll get here. But it's easy for us, you know. Do we have any doubt that God can overthrow these people? Say no. No. (laughs) And in fact, He's already shown them. He already swept away a whole army and their chariots of the Egyptians as they chased the Israelites through the Red Sea. He already swept away the Amalekites an army that they were vastly mismatched against. They've seen this stuff. And yet they get here. And they say, oh no, oh no, no, no. That sounds terrible. That sounds awful. You say the people that live there are really big and strong and and they've got big cities and... Ooh. Mm Mm-mm. That sounds frightening. And let's just not make any mistake. When Caleb and Joshua say, don't rebel against the Lord your God, that that word rebel is not too strong a word. Because in doing this, what they are saying to God is, God, we don't believe you, and we will not obey you. I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. That's what they're saying. We don't believe you. We don't take you at your word, and we're not going to do what you've told us to do. That's why it's rebellion. And it all comes down to a simple lack of faith. You and I are still called to exercise simple faith in our God. And I think what's interesting about this as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 earlier, there's that, that little bit in there 
that we walk by faith. Did you catch that? We walk by faith. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, the idea of walk is very clearly understood, as it was not just in the Bible, but in the entire Greek-speaking world, that 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 idea of walk used that way was, was sort of a way of talking about life, your manner of living, your walk. You know, sometimes we ask each other, what's, what's your Christian walk like, you know? It's how you walk. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says there, we walk, we live by faith. In other words, we don't just talk about faith. We don't just think about faith. We don't just say what we believe in. We walk that way. We behave that way. Real faith is evidenced by a behavior that says that that faith is real and true. Doesn't it? And here is where the Israelites have a real problem. They could have sat around all day and said, we sure believe our God is big. We believe our God can do anything. And yet when he says, okay, go, time to take the land, they say, oops, no. Well, they may have talked a lot about faith. They may have thought a lot about faith, but they did not walk in faith. You and I are still called to walk by faith. Not just to have a belief system. But see, faith means it affects my life and my behavior and my thoughts. We have a number of promises in our Bible about God and His interaction with us. God promises that He will always love us. That that love is unconditional. And that He'll never stop. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of our God. God has promised us that we are His adopted children. That he has brought us into his family with full rights and privileges and inheritance as his adopted children. God has promised us that when we ask for it, he'll give us wisdom. He's promised that when we flee the devil, the devil will, or excuse me, when we resist the devil, the devil will flee us. That's a promise from your God. He has promised that He forgives. That He has in fact forgiven in a a judicial sense, but that He continues to forgive in a relational sense whenever we confess our sins, that we're always forgiven and restored to a place of relationship. He's promised us as we celebrated earlier that He is returning. He's coming back. He's promised us that we will have eternal life in Jesus Christ eternal life. (laughs) He has promised us that He hears our prayers. He has promised us that He will meet all of our needs. Sometimes what we think are our needs are different than what God knows are our needs, but He's promised all our needs will be met by Him. God has promised that for those that love Him, that all things work out for good. See, we have all these promises, but it's all well and good to talk about them and to just sort of file them away in our brain. It's a different thing to walk by them. 
to behave according to the understanding and the faith that we have in these promises. This is what we see in the character of Joshua. Caleb too. But Caleb is going to sort of, you know, drift out of this story now. I mean, we're really focusing on Joshua. So I don't want to give Caleb short shrift here. But this is what Joshua and Caleb exercise here. This is the part of their character that we get to see develop now, where they're the two that say, no, stop. We know this looks insurmountable. We know that according to conventional wisdom and and human reckoning, this is impossible. We get it. But we're all forgetting something here. We're forgetting God. So come on. Let's go take this incredible, amazing land that our God promised us. That is walking by faith. You are called to walk by faith. Many of the things that your God has promised you and I seem incredible. They seem outlandish. Many of the things that God has promised us are subject to ridicule by a world that doesn't believe. It just seems like too much. Maybe we're not actually going into a land against, you know, supposed giants to overtake it, but, you know, we sort of figuratively grapple with these things each and every day. You remember the simplest thing that the devil told Eve in the garden when he very first tempted her was, did God really say that? And we continue to struggle with that. Did God really, is that really true? Eternal life. Does he really hear me? I don't feel like he does all the time, you know. Is it really true that the problems of my life can be overcome by God? It just doesn't, because the problems are right here staring me in the face. And You see, we continue to grapple with this simple question. Do you believe what God said? And will you walk accordingly? You understand? And that list of promises that I just rattled off, that is by no means an exhaustive list. You understand that? I just cherry-picked. But we have so many promises from our God. Our great and powerful and incredible God. He can overcome. He has overcome anything of this world. And the question for you and I isn't whether we believe, I've said so many times, whether we believe this thing intellectually, but whether it moves south from there and we will choose to walk in accordance with a faith that says, I know who my God is. I know what He has said. And I don't care what it looks like around me. I will trust my God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We have a trustworthy God. A faith-worthy God. A God who never has and never will fall through on any of His promises. And it is up to you and I 
as it was to Joshua and Caleb to walk that way. Our Father in heaven, we are all confronted with so many things. God, I know as I gather here this morning with my brothers and sisters that there are probably a hundred different stories of struggle, of, of doubt, of regret perhaps, of thinking that we just, it's too hard. God, help us like Joshua and like Caleb to say, that ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big my problems, my issues, my, my self-doubt, my doubt in the, the relationship I have with you. None of it matters because you, our God, have promised us some things. And you have not once defaulted on any of those promises. You have not once lacked the capability to carry them out. And so God, help us to truly where the rubber meets the road like this critical account of Joshua and Caleb help us to not just wag our fingers at the other spies and at the rest of the people of Israel who said we can't do it they're so far away from us it's so easy to judge them from here but help us today in the year 2022 to walk in faith the way Joshua and Caleb chose to Trusting you are who you are. Trusting the promises that you have made to us. Trusting that there is nothing that is insurmountable to you. God, help us not just to have a faith, but to walk in faith. For this is our call. Father, if there's anybody with us this morning, worshiping with us online, worshiping with us here in our presence, whatever the case may be, that hasn't ever just exercised that initial step of faith as we celebrated earlier with communion, this knowledge that Jesus Christ came and paid a price for us so that we could all be made right with you. That they would take that step of faith this morning say, okay, God, that's it. I'm going to stop trying to rationalize. I'm going to stop trying to pontificate. I'm just going to trust you at your word. I'm going to trust Jesus at his word. I'm going to trust when he came and died and was put into the tomb and then was resurrected from the dead and walked right out of that tomb, that he did that for me, that he did that so that I could be saved. And as irrational as it may feel, I'm just, I'm going to give up on all the other stuff. I'm going to put my life, my future, my salvation in the hands of Jesus and trust him and walk with him. God, we thank you for that salvation that belongs to all of us. If we'll simply agree with you in faith, that you did what you said you did. Help us all to walk that way this day, this week, until, Lord, you return. We pray in Christ's name.